Hi, and welcome to our second show of 2019. I'm Paul, the director of the Edinburgh Short Film Festival, and we are back here at EHFM at Summer Hall for our February edition. Uh, it's been quite a month for film around the world, and our team's been doing their best to get as many events in and around Scotland and beyond. Amanda here luck- was lucky enough to go to uh, Berlin for the Berlin Alley. Amanda, how was it? Uh, first of all, it was really warm and sunny, and I saw some really amazing films I'm looking forward to talking about later. Great. I mean, it was actually quite warm and sunny here as well, so that's a nice change. <laughs> Amanda will also be telling more about uh, us more about her favourite films from the Berlin Alley later in the show, and she was also interviewing Shona Thompson, an exhibitor, curator, and founder of A Kind of Seeing about her work across Scotland. Annie and Jim have also been going to quite a lot of film events at the Glasgow Film Festival. Jim, how was Glasgow for you? Uh, it was really very good, really interesting programme, a lot of good stuff, uh, a lot of good stuff still to come, and we'll talk about that a little bit later in the show, presumably. Yeah, great. Uh, Jim also sat down with Gabriel Brady, director of the acclaimed documentary Island of the Hungry Gross, and we'll be hearing that later in the show. So, Cinetopia had its very first networking event of 2019 last week at the Brewdog in Lothian Road, and there was quite a turnout. Annie, can you tell me about it and a bit about what's happening in March? Yeah, so we started these events now, this is the first one, where we invite filmmakers to come together and they can talk about their projects, they can connect with each other, maybe even plan future projects together. And we also had a uh, Oscar poll that we hosted, so we asked people to vote on uh, what they think is going to win the Oscar. And we actually have the winner here, not here in the studio with us, but I have the paper with me. Um, And if I can get a little drum roll from someone, please. Uh, the winner of the 2019 Oscar pool is Brian Robinson. Congratulations, oh, Brian. So we'll be sending you an email if we can make out your email from the paper here. If not, uh, get in contact with us. And also, uh, we'll be hosting our next networking event on the 20th of March, same place, um, Brewdog Lothian Road. So come over there, uh, Brian, and get your goodie bag. That's great. Well, congratulations, Brian. And uh, I hope you look forward to uh, receiving your mystifying gift. Uh, We'll also be looking forward to the uh, Cinetopia event in March. Uh, That sounds great. Uh, Later on this episode, we'll be reviewing the Oscar outcomes from uh, last night's Oscars and debating their continued relevance or otherwise. There's also two films currently out in the UK and UK cinemas, If Beale Street Could Talk and Capernaum. So, Oscars were Sunday night, early Monday morning for most of us, and there was a lot of controversy this year around uh, these Oscars. The first Oscars, first they added and then removed the category, and they then lost their host due to controversy. And Spike Lee found that Green Book wasn't his cup of tea. Anyway, our team have been sharpening their knives, so let rip, guys, and tell us what you think. Well, first of all, I'm going to be fairly useless for large parts of this discussion because I somehow conspired to not see Green Book, mm-hmm. which of course won Best Picture, and then not not Bohemian Rhapsody either, which won the most awards. So I think I'll let somebody else kick it off, and then I will come in with my moans and gripes later on. Well, I did get myself to see Green Book like three nights ago in the odds possibility that it would win because i really wanted to know <laughs> and not so it did odd. not so and odd, it did no. um and to be honest i because i did hear there was controversy and i was not expecting to like it um it wasn't the best film ever um and i certainly was shocked um but you know it was entertaining and i i, I get this aspect that it was kind of oscar bait because it was like the film 
that would win if Roma didn't, you know, like some sort of funny and sort of, you know, and emotional and uplifting and, and, and the acting was really, really good. So, I mean, the thing, given some of the films in that category, I think it would have to be pretty excellent to beat them, to be honest. I mean, like we spoke about the favorite on the last show. I thought that was an, ex- I had my issues with it, but I mean, it's an excellent film. There's really a lot to it. I was pulling for Black Klansman personally. There wasn't really a lot of buzz around it, but I really think it's an excellent film. Some of the best ones, uh, one of the best I saw last year. I think it's more, it seems to feel like a step back in terms of the type of films that the Academy choose. Now, I, again, I say this having not seen it, but from what I have seen, you think about some of the films that have won recently. The Shape of Water, which is really not something you'd expect to win an Oscar. Moonlight, of course. And then also Spotlight wasn't really expected to. This kind of feels like the... It, it feels a little bit like classic Oscar bait. And it feels like a step back in that regard, regardless of anything else, I would say. Yeah, and I think, Amanda, you said that to me. Because I haven't seen The Green Book either. But, like, um, Marshall Ali, Ali, who won the Best Supporting Actor, should have been the best actor as well. So, like, Viggo Mortensen is just as much of an actor as Marsha Ali is. On, so, basically... It's still a story by a white man. Yeah, the screen time was definitely um, almost half and half, although I do think it came from this perspective of the Viggo Morrison character. But it is it had, there has been controversy of whether or not, um, you know, it shouldn't be in, the, in a, a supporting role and more of a, you know, a, a, like a... An, and maybe that was in order to make it an easier win. You know, you never know. You know what I mean? I, it, it could be. I mean, th- th- this is something that seems to come up every Oscar season. Is like, oh, you know, is this a leading role? Is this a supporting role? I think sometimes studios are actually a little bit crafty with what they enter things into, mm-hmm. um, you know, because they, they have a better chance of winning one or the other. Um, so I, I wouldn't necessarily read too much into that. Um, and it sounds like the acting performances are universally pretty well regarded to be honest yeah they were fantastic very very good and it's what drove the film you know two people doing really great performance a touching story it's a true story um it was quite beautiful um so there's these are these oscar things that you you could see uh winning although as you said i agree um i saw almost all all of the films except a star is born so I and I thought all of them were amazing, except Bohemian Rhapsody, which I described last time. I loved it, but in in a fun sort of way, not in a best picture sort of way. And so I'm quite shocked that this is the one that went up on top. Also, what do you guys think about uh, Bohemian Rhapsody winning the best editor, best editing? Sound editing, though, right? No, the best. Editing. Yeah, it got best editing as well. Best editing and best sound editing. I think it was. No, I think sound editing. Oh yeah, so yeah, sound mixing and sound editing were sound both. Well, Bohemian I, Rhapsody, but the editing though. I I have this theory about some of the Oscars, right? And this is this is you know rant coming, uh, you know, <laughs> sound the sirens, right? But I have this theory that you can often predict the winner of an Oscar by replacing the word best with most. Um. You know, so Vice won best makeup and hairstyling. Mm-hmm. Now, you could argue about that, but in reality, it was probably the most makeup and hairstyling. And I think this is maybe where Bohemian Rhapsody comes in here. Um, and there's this theory that because it was such a car crash of production, it's actually kind of a little nod to the editor um, for being able to salvage something out of it. Um, and a little bit, 
of politics behind the scenes there. I find it remarkable that it won. I find it remarkable that Vice was nominated. I do get the feeling, despite the fact it's so integral, um, editing is one of these categories that I don't think a lot of people pay attention to in the Academy. I'm always a little bit surprised by what wins it, and Bohemian Rhapsody is no exception. Well, they were, yeah, they were thinking of uh, getting rid of it on the live show, so they wouldn't be showing the editing or the cinematography winners. I think there was a controversy about that as well, because those are the kind of essential things you have in film. You have actors and you have sound and uh, you know, theatre pieces as well, but you can't have a film without editing and cinematography. Yeah. There are also the heads of departments. You know, the cinematographer and the editor are the heads of the main parts of the film. It was also it was quite an interesting thing I saw um, Guillermo del Toro say in the wake of that because of course they'd reversed that decision right but something a, a very good point he made in particular about cinematography and editing was it's the only thing which is not inherited from a literary tradition or a theatre one like all the other ones have writing they have adaptation actors music um, all of these things but the actual kind of craft of cinema really comes down to how you choose to shoot it and get it into the camera, the cinematography, and then how you choose to cut it together in the editing. So, I mean, that was a bit shocking. It's good they went back on it, though, I suppose. Okay, did it also win... Uh, Bohemian Rhapsody did it also win Best Fake Moustache? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think I was shocked at how much Bohemian Rhapsody won. And the other, the, But the other thing is that I, I also found that... N- not there wasn't a sweeping win of any you know any film we thought roma might take so many film you know categories and and i'm glad it took best cinematography but i was also kind of surprised that you know everybody got a sort of piece in this oscars um and i was particularly happy for olivia coleman's um win um i i hadn't seen glenn close and the wife yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think I'm just a bit sore because I wanted Black Klansman to do better elsewhere. But, I mean, let's face it, the screenplay Oscars, in all honesty, unless there is a really standout script, they are the Oscars that are given to films that probably should win in other categories, right? And then, you know, it gets a vote in one of the screenplay categories because it's a good film and it should be, you know, rewarded for that. I mean, I don't really understand some of the oscars that have have been awarded and there was a lot of chat about you know it's a slightly more diverse offering right up until they uh, chose green book but i think there's kind of knock-on effects here because green book won best picture so roma didn't right so roma therefore wins best foreign language film and there's so many good films in that category shoplifters is excellent capernaum we're going to go on to talk about i think that's excellent cold war was you know really well regarded and it's a really great category, but there's a lot of things there that now have no recognition at this level, anyway, in this ceremony because of that. So it's kind of there are these knock-on effects, um, which I think are kind of unfortunate. And we spoke in the last show about people who aren't nominated at all. I mean, there's better films in Best Picture and arguably Best Director, in my view, that didn't get nominated at all. And I think that kind of confusion, the fact there's no standout. That's why nobody's kind of like race out ahead with 10 wins or something like that. And it is all a bit kind of split between who's nominated. Yeah, I mean, I think it also comes to maybe my preference, but um, I really love uh, the foreign language categories, all of those films. And so I think I was sort of expecting Roma to come in at Best Picture and give an option for other um, films that, you know, that w- were only followed in that um foreign language category yeah yeah 
It, it, it's funny, it's funny actually, because the best director category, I was surprised Pavel Pavlikovsky actually got nominated there. That was a bit of a shock, which is why I thought there might be something a bit more of an upset elsewhere, but apparently not. And we're going to listen to one of my favorite uh, foreign language films, uh, a song from 400 Blows. So I think one of the things we've been talking about back and forth in our own debates is whether or not, um, you know, the Oscars are even relevant anymore. So I read this article that was an opinion piece of Guardian, and they sometimes certain opinion pieces of Guardians get me really, like, irate. And this one was saying that all, you know, all um, award ceremonies should now be banned. But I also thought it was funny because he was the guy on The Guardian live tweeting the whole thing so you know he was getting paid to do something that he thought should be banned and i personally am one of those people who absolutely loves the oscars like i literally watched olivia coleman's uh you know uh speech as i was on the bus here and i was crying you know because <laughs> it was funny and you know i just love the pomp and circumstance of oscars but i realize some people don't so i was just wondering what you guys think uh, I mean, this is the point where I just come out sounding like a cynical old man, quite frankly. Um, it, they are relevant, but I mean, the question is, what are they relevant to? I think they're relevant to the industry from a promotional standpoint. You know, it's great to be able to put, you know, winner of 10 Academy Awards on your poster or whatever. But as we were basically discussing before, I think for people who want to, you know, celebrate good cinema and seek out good cinema. I certainly don't think they're irrelevant, but, I mean, they're of questionable usefulness now, I would say. And it's more a case of, you go to the individual Guild Awards, I think you can sometimes get a slightly better steer on, you know, what good aspects of different films are. But the problem is, like, your average cinema goer is not going to go look up the results of the Screen Actors Guild Awards or the Writers Guild of America or, you know, the Editing Guild or anything like that. So... I I find them a bit tiresome, to be perfectly honest. I can see why they would want to ban them. Not that I would, but, you know. Yeah, I think I'm a cynical man as well then, because I don't <laughs> think I... <laughs> I don't find them that relevant either. Uh, with any live TV, what I enjoy is the, the live Twitter feed of people commenting on things. That's the thing I follow. So that that's the entertainment part for me. That I, I never watch the actual live feed because there's nothing in it for me. And like you said, there's other instances pick up better films than the oscars do like the winner of the best film might not actually be a best film at all like it isn't to, you know at this moment in time at least so people should go to other other sources as well and you know they should be a bit more highly regarded like the best screenwriting for example yeah. like the screenwriters awards should definitely be more highly regarded i think yeah, I mean, my favourite part of the ceremony really is looking for uh, what memes come out of it. And, I mean, my favourite part of the ceremony last night was, quite frankly, seeing people tweeting um, Spike Lee's reaction to Green Book winning Best Picture. It's absolutely fantastic. It's just, you know, everybody is Spike Lee right now. Like, for me, that's become the most entertaining and interesting bit of it. Um, I don't know what... Did, I mean, Amanda, I think you're a little bit more into the oscars and i am clearly i mean what what what, do, what is it you you get out of them i suppose well i've over the years got out how much i disliked their choices so i there's <laughs> most most i actually love to hate the oscars but if they didn't exist then we wouldn't have i wouldn't have something to not like 
what they chose, you know? So, I mean, I, some of my least favorite films are have won Oscars over the years, and I grew up being really frustrated with that. But it also is the most, to me, and I, I, you know, meta, like, Hollywood sort of thing, which is, you know, filmmakers in a room, we love them, you know, we've watched them all, and talking about themselves and and live. And for me, in this age of live broadcasting everything, live tweeting and whatever, this is a glorious, glorious thing that sometimes really goes wrong. Like the couple years ago when, I mean, I loved watching, you know, La La Land win and then Moonlight actually win. It was just, it was like, as someone who's produced live events over the years, it's, it's, it's great. Uh, what do you call it? Schadenfreude, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I've got to say, though, I think we're in a sorry state if the best thing that we can come up with in favour of the Oscars is it's a lightning rod for our hate. <laughs> I mean, if that's the best thing it's got to offer, then it's, it's days are numbered, surely. Yeah, but then also look at the things. Like, I saw so many videos of certain people who were nominated, um, particularly some of the, I think, some of the actors that were in Roma and some of the um, other, I forgot, so a few others that, that they found out that they're, I think might have been shoplifters. I, I can't remember. And even uh, Richard E. Grant, you know, when he found out that he was nominated and it was a live feed of them finding out. And that made me super excited. It's, it's, a, it's a world stage and perhaps it needs to improve itself or make better decisions by, you know. Um, but I think that's, w- without it, we wouldn't have anything to compare. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things about the Oscars, I think, is that uh, I don't know how it affects, you know, a film's distribution and um, attendance and so on. I guess some people will go to see it if it's won an Oscar. Um, but I think most people just remember it when it goes wrong, you know. Uh, the one I remember is the 1989 Oscars when they had Snow White. Um, I don't know if you remember that. What happened? Yeah, it was a bit of a disaster. Um, they they kind of had a sort of Snow White um, spectacular essentially where she walked onto the stage and there was a song and dance routine is this when rob lowe sang with yeah Sno- yeah yeah yeah, yeah okay it <laughs> yeah it was, but people remember it you know um you can download that and w- or watch it on youtube i think you know if you want to see the full horror or in a vhs old school paul yeah that's right or vhs <laughs> yeah. so regina king won best supporting actress at the oscars for if beale street could talk and the film is currently out in cinemas across edinburgh jim would you recommend it uh, without hesitation, absolutely. Um, I thought it was an absolutely excellent film and really probably should have got more recognition at the Oscars. So um, just to give a bit of background about the film and what it actually is, it's uh, based on a James Baldwin novel of the same name and basically it follows two young lovers, uh, Tish, played by Kiki Lane, and uh, Fawny, played by either Stephen or Stefan James. I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce his name, to be honest. Um, and basically, he is going to jail for um, a wrongful arrest, effectively, and that's kind of played out across the film, some of the drama behind that. And uh, Tish, his partner, um, is pregnant with his child. So there's a lot of stuff going on in terms of... Um, his wrongful arrest and how they're going about trying to free him from the prison system. Uh, there's a lot of interesting family dynamic stuff based upon this unplanned pregnancy and the clash between the two families. Um, and it shares a lot of things with Moonlight, but that's the basic um, background behind it. And I really found it to be an absolutely excellent film. I don't know what you guys thought of it. We can get into it now, but really I would heartily recommend it without hesitation. 
I absolutely loved it. And, and I, you know, I remember that when Moonlight came out and heard all the buzz about it and then saw it and was like, yeah, I liked it. But I felt like the opposite happened here where I didn't know much buzz about the film. And then when I saw it, I was blown away. Um, I thought it was so beautiful, and I thought also just in the way that it sort of captured New York and this story and this love story in such a lyrical way. I mean, it certainly wasn't the nitty-gritty that the story was about, but the way it was filmed, um, you know, and, and it also showed me the, his style, you know, like I got more of an understanding of who Barry Jenkins was as a director. Yeah, I'm going to come in and say I did not like it. I'm sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> maybe it's because I just don't like love stories. I'm trying to kind of figure out what it is, but I can't really pin it. Because, uh, like, I'd still say, yeah, go see it. You might really enjoy it. Um, and it's, I think it's an important film. It highlights an important issue. It, like, it brings in this, it brings into forefront this this story that is hasn't been seen on screen. Well, that love story has been seen on screen too many times but from that point of view it hasn't but I think the biggest things that I had with it was some of the supporting actors were absolutely horrible um I did not enjoy the script at all I think some of the parts were ridiculous um I don't think the character motivations were thought through um the characters were just like really shallow and superficial but uh, maybe it's just because I, I, I don't buy into love stories. Um, you know. I could not disagree more. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that the, the first thing, you're quite right in the sense that it's, um, you know, we talk about this a lot. It's an important film and it highlights an important issue. But I think what really worked about it for me is there's a lot of strands going through here about, uh, w which the film could easily have focused on in a far less lyrical, a far more kind of gritty way. You know, there's the whole thing about um, wrongful imprisonment of uh, people of colour in America. That's through there. There's the treatment of sexual assault victims, because, of course, there is a sexual assault victim uh, related with the crime he's charged who He just didn't commit it. There's the rather interesting family dynamic between the... Um, sort of the, the working class family of Tish and the slightly more aspirational family of Fawny. But this is all kind of backdrops to it. It's really grounded in the the love story between the two characters. And I think the way that Barry Jenkins and his team, uh, including Nicholas Brattel, I think it is, who did the score, it's really made it engaging and not in a clawing way. Um, and I think the opening shot, if you go to see it, is really an example of that. It's kind of this dreamlike movement of the camera and it's really beautifully done um i disagree about the script i thought the script was very good i do have one caveat with it and it's actually slightly different to annie's you can tell it's based on the james baldwin novel because there are these segments where uh, tish does some voiceover and because the filmmaking is of such a high quality I wanted something more visual from those segments, if I'm going to be honest. Um, and that's what maybe stops it from getting up to the level of Moonlight for me. Like, I felt like we really engaged with these characters, their fears, and in my opinion, their motivations. I think they're quite clear. But there are these voiceover segments which didn't quite work for me. I wanted it to have a little bit more confidence in the visual story storytelling ability and also, you know, the way the music backs it up of the team behind it. So I think that would be my only uh, caveat of it. Beyond that, 
I actually really find it quite, and I don't particularly like love stories either. I have to say, um, certainly not if they're done in this kind of like very over the top, clawing way. But there's there was something about the way this is shot as well, and I think it's got something to do with the way the cinematography has been done, even the equipment it was shot on, which keeps it from feeling too um, clawing, too saccharine, and it really, for me, kind of drew me in. I thought it was really excellent. But yeah, I agree with you in the aspect that the kind of telling the story with words really kind of annoyed me as well. It, it felt a bit too hand-holdy. It was a bit, you know, the audience is not stupid. You don't need to explain every single thing. We can see it. But do please explain to me how can you buy the lawyer character? That's the worst performance I've seen on screen in the past five, ten years. Really? It was freaking horrible. And the guy who just gives them the flash... And his motivation when oh, he's that, asked, that. like, how, why? I just love to help people who are in love. Like, someone just wrote that on the script and said, replace this later with something better. And Also, I think the other part of it is they also did, that part I will concede. That part I will concede. Because also, they, they didn't replace it with something. They just put Dave Franco in there. Exactly. <laughs> which, doesn't, which doesn't substitute it for It doesn't scene. help. <laughs> Okay, so who's right? Is it a gritty drama as per Jim, or just sickeningly mawkish as Annie claims? You'll just have to see it to find out for yourself. Okay, while Roma won Best Foreign Language Film, Capernaum was also nominated for the same category, and it won the jury prize at Cannes last year. Annie, what's your take? Actually, I really like this one. Um, so basically, um, it's a film by Nadine Labaki. It takes place in Beirut, Lebanon. And the central narrative is that of uh, a Zan, a boy of 11 years old, who tries to sue his parents for having brought him to this world when they can't raise him properly. Um, I'm not sure if I really purchased that, what that basic premise, but other than that, I think the film is really good. Uh, it follows Zan. He runs away from home after an episode of, of negligence from his parents and ends up living with Rahil, uh, who is an Ethiopian migra- migrant worker, and she's got a young son, Jonas, who she's hiding from the government. And the stories of of these outcast characters, um, outcasts of the society, the paperless people, the illegal migrants, uh, kids born into this incredible poverty and lack of education that they basically inherit from their parents. And I think the themes were just absolutely beautiful. The cinematography was great. It was very engaging. It really kept your interest into the screen. The screen and everything of it is really, really, really good, I think. What, What did you guys think about it? Yeah, no, I, I, unlike the the other one, we're not going to have to have to fight about this one. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I thought it was excellent. Um, it's a really engaging film, and I think the way it's been shot as well is quite good because you, you're basically with this um, this young boy Zane for the the whole the whole film effectively, and it really all hinges on the performance of that that young actor but the way Nadine Labaki has shot certain segments it really adds to it because there are certain times where he needs to appear weak there are certain times where he needs to appear strong and the way she's framed him really really communicates that when he needs to appear strong he's shot from below and he looks imposing and then it flips it around I think and I'm interested to see what what uh, you folks thought about this one of the things that i found the most remarkable about this film is it, it's a very grim film right it's oh. it, it, it's a very depressing film and it's not particularly uplifting it doesn't have a particularly um uplifting conclusion there's a lot of misery on screen however it somehow manages to weave in bits of levity here and there which i think is really quite remarkable just in the way that um zane interacts with the 
very young toddler of uh, Rahil, who's the sort of the Ethiopian uh, migrant worker who takes him in quite early on in the film. And his interactions with her son are some of them are really quite funny, and it adds a. I hate using the word sweetness, right, because it sounds so twee, but it adds a sweetness to the film and a lightness that I think it needs because it is such a depressing topic, and I think that was quite remarkable, actually. Yeah, I agree, and I think in that particular example is is one of the best uh, because I actually think I heard some somewhere else they said that's the best performance they've ever seen of a toddler ever because <laughs> his acting was really 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 exceptional um and i the the acting of the young boy was um, unbelievable and they were all i believe like found found like act non-actors you know i mean to i mean obviously the toddler was but yeah, um, the, c- um, certainly zane is um like the so the, the kid who plays him i believe is a syrian refugee actually mm-hmm. um, yeah that's true and even the kid who plays Jonas, the the it's actually a girl instead of a boy but um, she lost her parents as well. They were deported from the country during the filming. So it w- the kid had to live with the filmmakers for a while. So the, all of this is kind of, you know, in, it's 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 coming from a, a real events, basically. And, yeah, like Amanda said, they're all, except for the parents, I think, are, are professional actors, but everyone else in the film is just off the streets. Yeah, I, I, I've seen a couple of takes on it, including... including one that I commissioned for take one, actually, whereby there's an argument that is maybe kind of guilting the audience a little bit. Um, Now, I don't think that's a completely unfair criticism. I didn't really get that myself, and I think the reason for that is those moments of levity that are woven in. Now, I I don't want to keep going on about it, right, because I don't want this to come across as if this film's a laugh riot, because it's really, really not. But to me presents a reasonably genuine picture because when you find when people find themselves in trying circumstances one of the things that gets them through is humor and maybe kind of the slightly ridiculous things that you can do to lighten your situation i think this film actually gets that across really well i think it gets across how a child in that situation would deal with it and i think that's really not an easy balancing act i I think that's why it was nominated for that oscar and why i wouldn't have complained if it had won to be perfectly honest it's doing a lot of things to make it not a laborious watch. It would be very easy to make this an absolute slog to get through. And it's certainly not uplifting, but it's not. You really want to follow the story. It's a story well told, well acted, and I don't think um, anything is really out of place. If anything is, I'm not sure the courtroom framing device worked quite as well as it could have. Um, that I didn't really click with, to be honest. Yeah, I agree with that. I didn't really buy it. You know, it doesn't. Like, there would have been other ways to get the courtroom to work. This the whole premise of of suing your parents for being born, and then somebody actually taking it seriously. You know, that's it just doesn't work. Well, the rest of the film was so kind of it was so kind of real and gritty that that kind of distanced me a bit. Like it's not a bad idea, and I can understand why it's there. Fully can understand why it's there. And it's it's innovative. It kind of it kind of grasps your interest when you go into oh look at this like this this seems interesting. What a premise! But yeah, it, it, I didn't buy it fully. That was the issue. It, it's something that I find films end up doing a, a lot. They they start and I forget what the Latin term is for it or some technical term for it. But when you start basically in the middle of the plot, 
Right. Uh, in media res. That's it. That's it. Exactly. Thank you, Paul. Right. So there's a lot of films that do this now, and I, I don't necessarily feel like they need to. This felt a little bit like that because you're constantly then trying to pay attention to when you're going to get back to where it started. Now, when it kicks it off, I think that's fine. I think it doesn't need to call back to it. Uh, later on in the film so that that didn't quite work even if it does lead to a couple of um set pieces that are quite good like the mother has a very impassioned speech at one point which i actually think is kind of essential to the themes of the film if it's not in there then it could be a bit problematic but i I feel like that could have been woven in slightly better which which is not to detract from the film overall i really do think it's excellent but you know as with anything very little is perfect and another film currently making its way around Scottish cinemas is Island of Hungry Ghosts. And Jim here sat down with the director, Gabrielle Brady, recently when she delivered a master class at the Scottish Documentary Institute. Yeah, so um, Gabrielle Brady was here to deliver a master class at uh, the Scottish Documentary Institute. Now, her film, The Island of the Hungry Ghosts, uh, got a couple of screens at the film house last month. And, it and basically, it's a documentary about a immigration detention centre on... Uh, Christmas Island is an Australian one. It's obviously very far from Australia, but it's really quite an uh, excellent documentary. It takes a slightly different approach uh, to the actual filmmaking. It's very kind of poetic and visual, and there are some staged elements, but it really kind of communicates the the issues with this centre in a, a, a really beautiful way, I thought. So, yeah, when she was here, I took the opportunity to sit down and talk to her about that, how she chose to approach the film, and it was really interesting to talk to her. So I'm here with Gabrielle Brady, uh, director of Island of the Hungry Ghosts. Uh, thank you for uh, coming, speaking to me today. So I think to start off with, let's just talk a little bit about the film and how it came about, and then we'll get into what you did approaching the filmmaking. Um, okay, so the film, Island of the Hungry Ghosts, it premiered, did it premiere at Tribeca or did it just win an award at Tribeca? Um, it, it premiered at Tribeca, actually. It was a, a bit of a double premiere. So we, at the same time, we were showing it um, at Neon, Vision de Real uh, Neon, for our European uh, international premiere, uh, which was actually the exact same time as Tribeca. Um, but, you know, with festivals needing kind of certain uh, titles, it was a world premiere at Tribeca. So, but they were being shown at, at more or less the same time at both festivals. Okay, great. And... How did you come about to make, making the film? Because um, obviously Christmas Island, it, certainly to certainly to me, having not been to Australia or even kind of that part of the world, because the island itself is quite far from Australia, right? Um, how did you find yourself coming to that subject matter? Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I came to the story when I was actually living in Indonesia, and uh, a good, my good friend, Polin Lee, um, for those who have seen the film, uh, is the, the, main, the main character of the film, the main, the main person that we follow in the film, was living on Christmas Island and had been working there for around three years. And, you know, we, we're really good friends. And for, for once, you know, beforehand I'd been in Cuba and she'd been in Africa and we'd been really far apart for a long time we were actually geographically closer for the first time in quite a few years. So she invited me and my partner across uh, for holiday to Christmas Island. Uh, as you said, it's actually very far from Australia, but it's very close to Indonesia. It's only a 45-minute flight. So we took a flight across, and really the intention for that time was to be as tourists. 
Um, and Polin had, had said to me, you know, um, I'd really, it, yeah, let's just enjoy this time. And I don't really want to talk about work all too much. And so we were just there to see each other and enjoy each other's company. And so, you know, we spent the time on the island as tourists seeing this very beautiful, idyllic side of the place. And it is, it is a paradise, you know, on one, one hand, it is extremely beautiful. Um, and at the end of that time, Poe said to me, there is something I, I need to show you. And so we went in the car, we took a machete, which on this island, if you go anywhere, you really need a machete. It's very overgrown and dense and wild. And we took a machete and we uh, drove up to a lookout point and we took the machete and we cut our way through the jungle. Um, and at the very end of, of that, it seemed to take forever. Uh, we finally came to the other end and it was a lookout point. And we were overlooking this huge prison detention center and it was just one of those moments of sheer horror um, for so many different reasons but just to see that structure in the middle of the jungle it was so clear that it had been built to be hidden um, that it had been built to to become invisible that we weren't meant to see it um, and just to imagine all of those people that Poland work with that that were in that place at that time and weren't able to get out. It was a really, um, yeah, it was a really kind of, you know, uncomfortable and disconcerting moment for me and it really kind of hung around. And so, yeah, but the film itself really was born out of ongoing conversations between me and Polin. Um, you know, both of us, each for our different intentions and reasons, kind of wanting to respond to what was going on and seeing is there a possibility for a film? Um, you know, but that moment has really hung around with me as like one of those little seeds that, that don't really kind of go away too quickly. And, uh, yeah, I'd continue to think about it. So, um, so coming back to the, the time where basically you, you hacked through the jungle with the machete, am I right in saying that must, that inspired then presumably the sequence in the film where Poland does exactly that? Absolutely. And, I've seen you speak about this before, but I just want to, to get a feel for how do you decide when you want to insert these slightly more staged elements? Um, because I, I think they really add, add a lot to the film and what I, I felt like you were trying to convey, but they're not necessarily what somebody might conventionally think of as, as documentary. So how do you weigh up when to do that? In the film. Yeah, that's a really important question. Um, I mean, I think one of the really key intentions that um, both me and Poe had from the beginning was that if we're going to make a film, it can't look or feel like, first of all, it, it needs to deviate away from this more conventional idea of, you know, a refugee film. And when I say that, I mean, you know, perhaps just one person's journey and, you know, more of a message-driven film, perhaps. Um, so these more kind of, you know, conventional narratives, but that we've seen a lot of. Um, you know, if we're going to make a film, it has to be something that, that moves to another direction and sees it in a completely new way, especially in the context of Australia, where the situation with offshore detention centres is, is a theme um, and an issue that has been in our uh, media and kind of uh, within our consciousness for a long time now and and people are you know have become really exhausted as well of talking about it and, and seeing it so it needs to be something that captures people attention in a very different way um, but also 
you know, I was really wanting to to move away from any image we've ever seen of this place. It had to be something completely unexpected. Um, the narrative, uh, sorry, the, the, the images that we've seen of this island in the media had been, you know, people on a little boat out at sea, arriving to a jetty, being taken in little buses and being seeing people behind fences. So those images were all very distant, very cold. They weren't about, you know, bringing us closer to someone and the experience or the truth of what was happening. In fact, it was doing the opposite. Um, so this film really needed to be about bringing us much closer to the experience, much closer and more intimately to the people inside of this experience. So every decision was kind of centered around that um, and less so about is this a hybrid form or is this a documentary form? Um, you know, it was, you know, it was kind of a, a different kind of consideration, I guess. But in saying that, I think a lot of the the more, uh, you know, very kind of less traditional documentary scenes were also very much born out of the context of the time and responding to the context of the situation. Um, and, you know, so the context of what was happening in terms of the ethics and people's safety were talking to how I would go about the form of the film. So, for example, with the therapy scenes that we see in the film, um, at the beginning, uh, you know, I was going into the actual therapy space and, and spending time and meeting people and, and conducting interviews. But that became apparent really quickly that, okay, how are we going to maintain contact with people? Um, and if we can't maintain contact with people, is this real permission? We don't know where, you know, like we see in the film, people just disappear how will we maintain contact with people to know that we have a real sense of permission? So that brought up this idea of permission and, and, you know, in terms of like our ethical engagement with people, this wasn't, this didn't settle well for, for Pauline or I, it wasn't something that we could go on with. We didn't have a real sense of permission. Um, and also it was incredibly risky to be filming within those, um, you know, within those rooms where there were guards waiting outside and there was the risk of, you know, people going back into the detention centre, their emails were being monitored. Um, so, you know, we were kind of considered about how we would do it and I was really curious to to film the therapy scenes for a lot of different reasons. Um, one being that it, it's a space where it's spontaneous for everyone. You know, in, in, a, in a kind of in the space of therapy, as opposed to a, a director interview, I don't know what's going to happen. I have absolutely no control over it. Uh, Pauline, you know, the facilitator in that space has no idea what will happen. The person who is in their therapy session also has no idea what will happen. So it's a very spontaneous space. And I thought that could be a really interesting, you know, cinematic space for us to explore. And I think something Pauline mentions is that it also helped us to move away from this idea of people sitting down to tell their one dominative narrative, which when you're seeking asylum, that's what you're asked to do. You're asked to tell why you're coming, what happened to you, what happened back home. You're, you're forced to tell that one, usually you know, the, 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 the worst story of your life, that one narrative. Um, and that was something for Pauline and, and, and also for me that we wanted to move away from. We weren't wanting to replicate what the system was already putting in place for these people. So the therapy, you know, entering that space was born out of those ideas. But how would we do it? 
um, how would we do it when we couldn't maintain contact with people while they were still on the island? So we made the decision that, um, you know, or I had the idea that we could experiment with building the therapy space on the mainland in Australia and that when Poland's clients had left the island and were now on mainland Australia, um, you know, within a very short time frame, that we would then film the, the therapy sessions then. And I say it was an experiment because I, I really didn't know it would work. Um, and this was because of the way it was filmed. Uh, you know, it was very much therapy number one, filming number two. So I was not pre-talking to people and offering any direction or saying if we could just speak about this or this. No, this was somebody arriving, entering into that space and whatever it was that, that came up in that session with Poland was what it was. And you were uh, purely observational. And we were purely observational in that space. There was no um, interaction. Um, there, was, there was no kind of... Um, yeah, there was no pre-planning around that. We just had to be spontaneous to what came up. And yeah, what was surprising, of course, for me, I don't know for anyone else, but was that these situations from the detention centre were still so strong and so real and so present. Um, and it was like we were still there in people's memories. And from that time, I was able to, to stay in touch with those people who have become really close friends. And they were able to be involved in the editing process and see their their session and tell me, yes, this can work, can you take this part out, I'm not comfortable, this name can't be used. So we were in conversation around that and it wasn't just something that we took and, you know, kind of never were able to see that person again. So Interesting to hear you speak about it because the other, the other question I had about the, the therapy sessions was, so you said it would be quite an interesting cinematic space, and I think one of the, the key things that came through for me in that is the focus on the, the sandbox with the, sort of the children's toys and reenacting moments in their lives that are talked about. When, when did you make the decision to put an emphasis on that? Because it, it works very well as a device, I find, but it, it's basically just the creative process about how you chose to focus on that. Yeah, I mean, I think... Even like with the idea of the, um, you know, these more non-traditional documentary approaches in the film, a lot of them were born out of, you know, what was happening at the time. And so, for example, with the sand play, um, you know, that was also inspiring to me in terms of other approaches in the film, you know, in terms of some of these more, uh, you know, reenacted or, or staged feeling moments. So um, the sand it wasn't that it was kind of my decision. It was that that is the practice that Poland that Poland does, um, as well as the the spoken narrative therapy is the sand therapy. Um, so that organically was already there as um, you know as as Poland's work. Um, but apart from that, of course, I was so interested in it because it was a visual. Um, it was a, a, instantly we were taken into a visual world with what she was doing with her clients. And so I was incredibly curious about that. And when we started talking about it, or when I started asking her, how, how would, would it be possible for us to film those scenes? Um, her first response was, well, I would need you to do a sand therapy first, so you know what the experience is like, and then we can start to talk. And so I did a sand therapy session with her. Um, and that was really, um, I mean, it was incredibly insightful. Um, and I think, yeah, it was, 
I guess I saw a way of uh, being able to, to kind of be in someone's experience, again, without them having to try to find the words of, of what it is we see it. And film is a visual, it's a visual form. It's not a podcast. It's, it's not audio. We're looking for images um, as well as sound that take us into someone's inner landscape. And I think Poe does that through her work. And I was really curious for us to be able to observe that as well as a, as a cinematic tool in the film. One thing I'd, I'd, I wanted to ask you about actually was, I, so I, I, I knew there was a, a short film, um, but I must confess I only watched it a couple of days ago because I found out it was, it was through The Guardian. I didn't realise that you made the two of them almost at the same time, basically. So did that affect how you did things at all? Because I noticed that the, the short film has um, a lot more context at the start. Um, about the detention centre, where it is, how people find themselves there. Whereas obviously the the feature, you kind of go straight into it. So did that affect how you made either, the fact that you were kind of doing it simultaneously? or? Well, I mean, I think, so the way we kind of came to do that was, you know, we engaged with The Guardian at a point where um, I was already making the feature. And it was a way that we could support making the feature, but also it was an opportunity to make two very different films, which I think most directors <laughs> would be really excited about. How do we make these two very different forms, um, or at least you know somewhat different forms um, of the same story? So when I went to shoot on the island, I, I had it in mind. You know, I'd already been speaking uh, to the Guardian, and we had a an, an approach to the film in mind, and so. As you see in the short film, we, we interact with Poland directly. She's speaking directly to the camera, so there's a direct relationship with her. Um, and we're also given a lot more context in terms of text cards and, and, of course, the way it's structured. So those were... I was able to keep it quite separately in that sense because, you know, that was a very clear difference. The scenes we were filming with Poland speaking directly to the camera were always for the short film. Um, and... You know, and and so and so many of the other scenes were, you know, most of the other scenes were for the feature. Um, I guess where it got really difficult was in the edit. Um, but the way we kind of managed this was that I engaged with an editor, Sally, um, in Australia, and we cut the short first. I guess the difficulty about this was trying to imagine um, what I would use for the feature and trying to create something that would be very different from the feature not yet knowing what the shape of the the feet of the feature was yet so I was really having to kind of imagine what might not be used for the feature or what you know because I really wanted two just very distinct different versions of the story um, you know for a lot of different reasons so so one thing that really helped was having two totally different editors in two different lands so we edited right, okay. yeah. we edited in Australia um, you know, me and Sally uh, over, I think it was over about a month. And we only watched a very select amount of material, um, you know, so I probably pre-selected about 10 hours or something like that. Uh, and we made the short that way. And then for the feature, that editor in Germany um, didn't ever watch The Guardian, the, the short film. And we watched all the material from beginning to end. Um, and it was a much lengthier, much more kind of engrossed process um, but that was a very clear way of keeping my head clear with the two versions and at some point during the process of watching the material when we were editing the feature I was able to 
in some way forget the structure of the short so I could start from scratch with the feature. Um, but it, you know, it also helped. I, I got a sense of the material in making the short and I got a sense of the way some scenes were talking to each other and it was also kind of helpful to get a sense of how the feature was going to look but really important to work with two different editors. I, I, I can imagine, because I, I, I was wondering about that. It would be an absolute nightmare. Yeah. I think that would be impossible. <laughs> that would be such a hard Especially task. if you're trying to make a very different style of short to style of feature yeah, as well. Yeah, it would be so would cruel be, to yeah. ask that from an editor. <laughs> okay, now we're going to go in a completely different direction yeah. and you're going to make another <laughs> film from it. Uh, maybe some could do it, I don't know, but it would definitely be a difficult task. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Um, a, a slightly more sort of distribution related question has the film been shown in Australia? So the film premiered uh, at the Melbourne International Film Festival in August last year and I was there with Pauline uh, we both came across from Europe and um, her boss Chris who features in the film was also there and also uh, many of, the, of her clients that feature in the film were also there for the screening so it was a really significant screening for us, uh, if not the most significant, having the actual participants from the film uh, witness the film with an audience. And, um, you know, but it, we weren't, we actually weren't showing the original film. So to be able to show it in Australia, I had to make a second cut where all the people that are shown in the, the therapy space, all the people seeking asylum, weren't shown in full face. They, just their eyes were shown and this was part of the the discussions with the legal team and of course with the participants themselves about um, keeping people safe and still at this point it was just too risky to be disclosing people's identities. Would they still have applications going at the time that still happened Still pending, then, that's yeah. right, okay. yeah, all on bridging visas. Um, so... But it was it was a kind of incredibly kind of intense and cathartic experience for people to see see themselves and and see their their stories in relation to an audience and it was a packed house um, and yeah it was kind of an incredible experience um, on the second screening uh, we had somebody asking a question at the end in the Q and A. Um, you know, so we'd had some really interesting questions and then the next question came and a man had his hand up and then he was kind of, you know, got the microphone and he said, so did you get permission from the department? And my first reaction was, um, what department? Did you get permission from the department in which you needed to get permission to make this film? And my first response was, well... We, you know, because we filmed a lot with the crabs and in the, you know, in, in the jungle on Christmas Island, we did get permission from the parks and recreation team on the island, um, if that's what you mean, of course, knowing what he meant. And then another person put their hand up, said, no, 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 what we're saying is, did you get permission from the Department of Immigration? And at that point, and they were very hostile um, in the way they were asking the question. And at that point, Pauline took the microphone and I think she said something along the lines of, we didn't seek permission from the system. We were seeking permission from individuals. And the whole crowd just kind of went silent and there was some clapping and it was kind of one of those moments of like, um, so yeah, there was definitely some strange moments in the Q and A's in Australia and some tense moments. Um, but you know, we're, we're about to launch the cinema release in Australia in two weeks time. Um, and obviously we're really hoping that this 
starts to promote a lot of dialogue and discussion around um, the issue of offshore detention centres. Um, obviously, we're broadcasting from Edinburgh. Why do you find yourself at the Scottish Documentary Institute? Um, actually, I'm pretty kind of lucky. I've been to Edinburgh now three times in the last short while. Um, we had the film uh, showing here at the Film House uh, just a couple of weeks ago as part of the UK uh, theatre release, theatrical release. Um, and yeah, and then I was invited back um, through Nowhere at the Scottish Documentary Institute to do a bit of a, a masterclass, or they call it a masterclass, but really just a, a chance to, to discuss a little bit about the film um, with, with students and film professionals here. Um, which was great. About half the the audience had seen the film and half didn't. So it was a really great chance to go through, you know, some of the scenes and really dissect the scenes um, in terms of how it was made. And you know, it's great with a, a room full of film people because you can get really nerdy about technique and and um, about all of the film elements. Uh, so it was wonderful. It's been a really great stay. I'm really have been really excited to come back. So were you here with, because the film played at the Edinburgh Film Festival last year. Yes, and then it was at the Edinburgh Film Festival last year, uh, and I was here for that, um, and then back again for the, the cinema release, and then uh, back again now. So it's becoming a bit of a second home for, for the film and, and for me. Um, it's been wonderful, and actually all of the audiences that we had in Edinburgh um, were incredibly engaged. Uh, you know, we, we did it through... I think, um, you know, Tamara from Take One Action Film Festivals was doing the Q&A and so it was just very involved and um, I think both screenings just happened to be full houses when I was there. So what are you working on right now? Are you working on a, a new film? Are you planning? What, what have you got in the pipeline, I suppose, that you can talk about? Anyway? Yeah, um, in the pipeline is uh, directly after I'm in Australia for the theatrical release of this film, I go to Mongolia and I'll be doing uh, about five weeks of research there, possibly shooting a little something. Um, but it's very early to talk about, so I'm going to leave uh, leave it with an air of mystery. Um, but I'll be working with a, a nomadic family who live um, outside of uh, Ulaanbaatar, the, the capital city there. Um, and it's a place that I, I, I lived there in 2008. It's actually where I met Paulin, uh, the main character of this film. Uh, we were both working there in very different areas. Um, so I'll be going back there to do a bit of research for my next film project. So thank you, Gabrielle, for talking to us. It's been really interesting and uh, safe journey home. So February was a big month of film festivals. First Sundance, then Berlinale, and now it's the Glasgow Film Festival. Amanda, you went to Berlinale. Tell us a bit about the festival and, and what you thought were some of the highlights. Yeah, well, um, Berlinale this year for me was my second uh, year. So uh, what's really lovely about that festival is that it's very much for the public. So you can walk up and get tickets um, to almost every film they're, they're showing. And um, they're in these really, really beautiful theaters. And I had one sort of a dream um, in the last two years to kind of go to every theater that I could. <laughs> that was particularly beautiful. And so I went, the first film I saw was Agnes Varda's um, Varda by Agnes, which was um, basically a master class of her uh, her her films over the years and as a big big fan of hers I I had to see it and was 
was very, very happy to see it. I do highly recommend it to anyone who is interested in documentary filmmaking and filmmaking. Um, it's really, really interesting to see a woman of her stature, but also a woman who's been working since, uh, you know, I think the 50s um, on films and how she approaches different things and how she's changed from, you know, uh, French New Wave films to art installations and documentaries all throughout the years up until now. Um, so I highly, highly recommend that. Um, and then I ended up seeing The Magic Life of V, which was a Finnish-Bulgarian documentary, which was very, very interesting and I, um, about LARPing, which is live-action role-playing, <laughs> and uh, also just a particular family story of, um, of in a Finnish family. So um, that was quite, quite interesting in the Zoo Palace, beautiful theater. And then I saw um, PJ Harvey's A Dog Called Money, um, which... Uh, you know, was was in in a gr it's a great album. Let's just say that, and not my favorite documentary, but it was a great experience. And I'm looking forward to, um, you know, uh, going years and years from now. Great, glad you had a nice time. Um, okay, so the Glasgow Film Festival is happening right now, and we sent Jim there for a whole weekend. Uh, well, there you saw quite a few films. So, Jim, how was Glasgow for you? Uh, it was excellent, and I went there for more than a weekend. I was there for the uh, the first four days of the festival. Wow. Um, so they had the opening gala on Wednesday night, which was mid-90s, uh, Jonah Hill's directorial debut, which I, I will confess ahead of time I was a little bit cynical about. I didn't necessarily see what the big deal would be, but I've seen it. It's, uh, it's really very good and worth uh, checking out when it comes out on release later. Uh, while I was there, I saw quite a lot of films, and some highlights, I suppose. Uh, I did enjoy The Sisters the sisters Brothers, um, for the apostrophe detectives out there. It's two brothers called The Sisters Brothers, as in that's their surname, which confused the hell out of me mm. until I actually saw the film. And the director of that is Jacques Odiard, who did uh, Rustin Bone and The Prophet. Uh, I thought he'd be a bit of a strange fit for this one, because it's kind of a darkly comedic and has, you know you know a couple of slapstick elements and parts of it but it was really excellent uh there's a belgian cinema strand going on which i also thought was uh, really good i've accidentally ended up seeing quite a few things from that uh, in particular there was a film called mother's instinct which i thought was really quite good um a little bit too homagey to maybe break out on its own but it was enormous fun to watch um there's a film about uh silvio berlusconi from paolo sorrentino i uh, got a screening there uh, a lot of fun um a little bit bizarre at the start but like really enjoyable really fun to watch and there's quite a lot of good films coming up in the coming week they've actually added stuff to the program so on the 2nd and 3rd of march i think they're screening at eternity's gate uh, which is the film that willem defoe was nominated for uh, playing vincent van gogh uh, so that's been added to the program along with a film called wild rose which is getting its premiere uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff, actually. There's a film called Galveston, which is directed by the uh, French actress Melanie Laurent. Um, that will be getting... I think it might be a UK premiere, unless it showed up at London. I'm not 100% sure about that. But regardless, it's well worth seeing. Uh, the most interesting one on the 28th is actually... There's an Indian film called Kia and Cosmos, uh, which is an Indian film based upon the Curie's incident of the dog in the night time. It's a little bit slow to get started, um, but once it does... It's really engaging, and it's a really quite touching film. So there's a lot of interesting stuff. I've been consistently impressed with the Glasgow program, to be honest. I think they do a really, really good job over there of programming their festival. 
Okay, welcome back. I'm here with Shona Thompson, who's a creative producer, film curator based in Edinburgh and founder of Kind of Seeing. Hello. Hi. Um, Shona's particularly known for her work with archive films across Scotland and has a special knack for making archive film screenings very cool. Uh, Shona and I first met while we were, I was doing a postgraduate work at the Film Exhibition Curation Department at the University of Edinburgh, where she's a guest lecturer. Uh, Shona, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Real pleasure to be here. So tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get into showing films, and particularly archive films, across Scotland? Well, um, it's a bit of a long story, I suppose, and I'll try and keep it short, but um, it kind of started off. I studied film um, at university in Liverpool. Um, and very quickly decided I didn't want to make films. Um, and when I left school, I actually started working at the Edinburgh International Film Festival. I am from here and grew up here. And so that was quite um, uh, an experience and really sort of formed a lot of what I wanted to do. And so um needed to make some money and uh, ended up as a PA, as a personal assistant for 10 years <laughs> working in property development. And uh, so that's a rather bizarre start to it all. But um, at the same time, I was living this parallel life with uh, programming at Edinburgh International Film Festival. So I was watching documentaries by the bucket load in the evening and then getting up and going to work um, and uh, chatting with lawyers and and, uh, solicitors during the day. So um, that carried on for, say, about 10 years. Um, But I became a PA at the National Library of Scotland which is where the Moving Image Archive is, our sort of national film collection. And uh, that was quite amazing. I got a chance to sort of see behind the scenes um, in my daily work and uh, and I got a chance to sort of just spend a bit of time with the films in there. And, um, and then it all kind of came together and I managed to do one event called A Kind of Seeing mm. um, in 2009 at the film festival. They knew me and they kind of, trusted me i guess mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and so i put this event together of showing archive films uh with janet mcbain who at the time was the oh, yeah. the head curator at um at the archive and set up the scottish screen archive as it was and yeah showed a film called a kind of seeing which really inspired me uh which was made by an amazing filmmaker called eddie mcconnell in the 1960s um, and uh, Eddie came along to the screening. Oh, wow. So it was a sort of the first time that bringing the films, for me, to bring the films in a big sort of big screen setting to uh, to an audience with the filmmaker. And that's what I do a lot, as mm-hmm. makes it sometimes quite special. Yeah, sort of live sort of ex- event experiences is what you do. Yeah, and, and just making that um, real connection between the film and the people who are watching the film, mm-hmm. um, whether that's folk who are coming to the Edinburgh Film Festival or whether that's people who are going to the screen machine, the mobile cinema that goes around the Highlands and Islands, whether it's folk in a library in Girvan, you know, it's it's actually making that connection um, f- uh, for people, I guess, in some respects, and then they just run with it during the event. So watching the films and then having the blether afterwards, which I do a lot, sort of having a chat afterwards, sorry, using Scots there with <laughs> and unconsciously. So um, you're about to do, a, a, the Glasgow Film Festival is underway right now, and you're about to do an archive event with Glasgow Film Festival, correct? Yeah, yeah, it's really, really exciting, actually. It's quite a, a, a real development for me in, in what I do with a kind of seeing. Um, I was approached uh, by Jodie Wilkinson, 
at uh, Glasgow Film, and Jodie's all about the kind of the the outreach of of Glasgow Film, of the festival, of GFT, the the cinema, as well, and about connecting what's happening in the cinema with the, the wider community and and access as well. So she was doing these movie memories uh, season, mm-hmm. uh, which was a kind of funded uh, is a funded program that's been happening for just over a year now, I think. Um, and it's it's originally been as for um, uh, folk who live with dementia and their carers. And uh, that program kind of developed then. Jodie worked with her colleague Becca, who does the sort of schools and education work. And they wanted to do something together. And so they were working with groups already in the Mary Hill area hmm. of uh, Glasgow. And they asked me to come along and do some curation with those four groups um, to... Uh, work with the groups to talk about what's important to them in their community. Because it's just working with that power of archive film that when you watch the films of places where you're maybe from or that you know really, really well, there's a real sort of magic that happens mm. in the room that folk are like, oh, gosh, recognise that. So it's kind of working with that and, and actually doing it in a live um, setting. So these groups have been working with them since December and we are putting together... Uh, these programs of films that are specific to what they're talking about, what they're interested in, uh, whether that's McDonald's. There's a lot of chat about McDonald's. <laughs> it's very popular in Maryhill. Wow. Um, also, what else? There's the dancing. Mm-hmm. You know, folk remember the dancing at the Locarno and at the Barras, the ballroom. So the event is on the 3rd of March at Glasgow Film Festival. And uh, it's going to be happening in Maryhill um, Community Central Hall. Um, in the Seymour Cinema, which happens in that. It's an amazing space. It used to be a cinema in itself. Um, and it's a, it's a fantastic space. It's got an organ and everything. We're not wow. sure we're going to be able to use it. <laughs> but uh, um, So we're going to screen the films and the groups are going to actually present themselves the films that they've, they've been ch- selecting and, and I've been editing together with them. Um, and uh, yeah, it should be a, a, a great yeah, kind of afternoon. Fantastic. So that's on at 12 o'clock. It's just been amazing to for me to kind of almost rediscover the archive mm-hmm. with these groups. Great. It sounds like a really wonderful event that we all should go to. Yeah, and it's free as well. So mm-hmm. any, it's mm-hmm. definitely, and I believe tickets are uh, going like hotcakes. Uh, you've done a lot of work with the Hippodrome uh, Silent Film Festival over the years as well, right? Yes, I was the original producer in that um, it was actually while I was a PA at the National Library of Scotland, um, I got contacted by Falkirk Council um, who'd already done a feasibility study for this idea of a silent film festival. And they wanted someone to produce something in its first year in that someone who would sort of do the coordination of it. Um, Alison Strauss, who is the programmer and sort of arts development officer for film and media at uh, the council. Um, so she was already programming the Hippodrome, which had just opened in 2009. And um, so she would be, she would programmed it all and um, and then I was doing the, on the production side. So that kind of sort of coordination of print traffic, getting films to the cinema and um, getting musicians to the cinema too. So it was, it was quite a, a risk, to be honest. It was fascinating because it was the, the council had been part of this big refurbishment of this amazing cinema. So it's this hippodrome, if, nobody, if anyone doesn't know about it already, they should, and they should go. Uh, but it's in a place called Bones, which is just um, a couple of miles north of Linlithgow on the train line. Um, and it's an amazing town. Um, it's got an amazingly rich history of mining 
and as a port as well. And so this refurbishment of the uh, cinema, which is at the centre of the town, was a real um, part of that regeneration in 2009. And um, and it's 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 um, it's Scotland's oldest purpose-built cinema. So it was built in 1912 specifically for watching films and specifically for watching silent films as well. So it's in this circular auditorium, um, and all the musicians that play there say that it's it's a beautiful tone. It's it's wooden panelled inside. Um, it's got it's got a balcony as well, and uh, and so. It was it was a bit of a risk in some ways to say, well, let's do a silent film festival. You know, it's silent. There's black and white films. Um, who's really interested in that? But there was a real kind of drive to to make it happen um, in uh, across the kind of the film exhibition sector at the time. And um, what was really special about it was the idea of bringing live music back into the cinema back into this building that was built for it so um ali put together this amazing program and uh we got the support of some fantastic musicians like neil brand who you can see now on television just about every other day which is great um and uh and and he came and stephen horn was another amazing musician so there's a real real um again pride and kind of like love for this this building bringing in the these musicians and um and audiences from all over the 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 country and sometimes the world um and also an amazing film program and so i pro i produced that for the first five years so the the hippodrome festival is now um in its ninth year um and it's actually happening next month happens every march and um, so it starts on the 16th of March with a screening of The Hound of the Baskervilles in the Barony Theatre, which um, should be fantastic. Mike Nolan, who's a great stalwart of the festival, will be performing piano for that. Um, and then it kicks in earnest on the Wednesday, the 20th of March, um, with a brilliant um, um, evening screening of Rob Roy um, on the Wednesday night. And this carries on through for like just days five days of just absolute joy of silent film with the live music and that's so important it's always been at the heart of of what the festival's been about and uh it's just so i feel so proud to have been part of that team that that sort of start set it up and there's quite a a big following of silent film right so there's a lot of people who come to bonus for for this event correct yeah, it's part of the calendar now. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's like um, there's other film festivals that go on. There's Slapstick down south in Bristol, um, but really, um, and there's also the British Silent Film Festival as well, which is um, uh, very much led by academics and and has a real kind of real magnifying close up look into the silent era um, and that that whole world. Bonus has a, a a slightly lighter touch in some respects, in that um, it's open to the public um that can come along and um just get a feel for what silent film is actually like it's not silent i think it's it's actually a bit of a misnomer to call it silent um it's uh it's it's very not silent at all when you have like you know either a pianist you know banging away at a, a beautiful piano in the in the cinema um very full of skill obviously um or you've got like a band so like for example we had mark kermode the film critic um and his uh, the band that he plays with, the Dodge Brothers, um, with Neil Brand and Ali Hergy and Mike and Alex Hammond. I know we really want to go this year, um, and I, I've been to um, the Bonest, the Hippodrome, and it's such a beautiful space. So I, I totally. So uh, you've done a lot of work uh, with pairing archive films and local musicians. Um, maybe coming out of this this work, and you're working on a one right now, right? Yeah, that came from the. Um, 
it was actually in the early years of when I was working with the Hippodrome Festival, I was uh, I, I came across some films um, of what was known as the silent divas of Italian cinema. And uh, I thought, these are great. And and Ali loved them as well. But we just never found um, performers to actually um, go with it in some respects. And it's that's really important to make that, that sort of, that choice. You need to have folk that are A, into the film, obviously, um, and also um, really get that experience. It's not just them performing on stage with a film behind them. And I know a lot of musicians would never feel that, but it's 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 real art as well. It's like it's if it's an hour, an hour and a half long film, you just don't stop. You play, and you have to. You can't stop. The film will not stop for you. Um, you know, it's not like tracks or anything. You're just constantly going, and we're all in this together. <laughs> You've got an audience who are just hanging on your every note. So. Um, so I love these silent divas films. the 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 women were so strong. They were, and in the industry themselves at the time. So this is the nineteen tens. They were really powerful. So um, they were very popular actresses. They were on the stage, but they were also on the screen, and so they were very popular with audiences. So they could be quite um, controlling and influencing in what films they could they would star in and what would get money as well. Um, and so uh, there was three or four of them and one of them was Francesca Bertini who is this incredible woman and she was in this film called Assunta Spina and it is one of the most famous ones and so many have been lost of course as well over the years and, and this is the one one of the one, few ones that survived so um, and it's it, there's there's no there's no laughs do you know <laughs> it's it's uh, it's real hard-hitting kind of um, stuff I mean she's you know in love with with two guys and torn between them and it's all very passionate and and there's there's a bit of you know face slashing going on and things you know it's it's like a lot of jealousy and and revenge but she's she is front and center which is something you don't always see and she is very strong and and it was only um a few years later that it was actually um confirmed and agreed that she did co-direct the film um so as well as starring in it she was co-directing it um and uh and it just sort of struck me it's like well that's that to that need to be recognized you know and it's it's something that maybe still happens today potentially um of those sort of like women that aren't um heard of so much in in the in the film industry um so it's uh i thought it was really important to, to sort of work with it and i i met um a guy called alistair cole um at a party and uh, I said, well, what do you do? He said, oh, well, I'm a filmmaker, but I'm also in a band, a southern Italian folk band. I was like, all oh, right, okay. And uh, and so Asunta Spina came through my mind. This was like five, six years after I'd first seen the film. And uh, and I was really keen that, that Asunta, Asunta Spina is the name of the, the character, Francesca Bertini's character. I was really keen that she had a um, a voice, you know, that it was a female voice, it was a female-led band. And indeed, the Badwills, the, Alistair, uh, the band that Alistair was in, um, has Elena Zini, who is the the lead singer, and she's just brilliant, just so beautiful, and they were totally up for it. Um, they do uh, Mediterraneo. Um, they just had one on Saturday actually, um, here at Summer Hall, and um, so they have a big following, and they have this this just real excitement about what they do, and uh, and and playfulness, which I think is is part of it. It's it's sort of like you're you're sharing the stage with this film and with your actors. So yeah, so that's um, Asunta Spina. It's uh, it was a great process that they've this put together this amazing score um, that um, we're now touring and uh, so Glasgow Film Festival and I programmed uh, commissioned the new score and we are um, 
we had the premiere last year. So we've been, since that premiere, I've been working on getting funding in to actually tour it, to get it around Scotland. I think it's a really important story that, that folk would be interested to see. And, and as I say, that kind of hidden histories of, of women in, in filmmaking. So we got some funding from the BFIs, the British Film Institute's Film Hub Scotland, and also PRS um, for Music Foundation. And uh, and they were also collaborating with a great pair of um, curators um, called Invisible Women, which is Rachel Pronger and Camilla Bayer. And as well as the films, we're showing a selection of short films that um, they have programmed um, that are specifically from the British heritage, um, moving image heritage collections that are around what um, other filmmakers that have just not been recognised. And it's about getting that voice coming through. Um, that sounds um, wonderful. So, just recap: when when is when is the tour going on? Give us a couple dates for the tour. Yep. So the tour is starting on Saturday, the second of March, um, in Eden Court at mm-hmm. Inverness, the amazing uh, multi art centre there, but in the cinema. And uh, as I say, we'll have the Invisible Women program there. And then on Sunday, the third of March, um, in the evening at Dundee Contemporary Arts. Um, so uh, that's going to be smashing because that's part of the Dundee Women's Festival. So I'm hoping we'll get a, a good crew along. So um, do let everyone know about that. And then the following weekend on Saturday the 9th of March, we're up to the Westside Cinema in Stromness Town Hall in Orkney. Um, it's a really strong um, uh, cinema there, uh, cinema uh, night that happens every Saturday and uh, the month. And... Um, after the film, there's going to be a wee bit uh, wild and furious dancing with the Bad Wills and their music. So really looking forward to that. And then the final date, uh, this part of the tour is Sunday the 10th of March at 7.30 in Lyth Art Centre. Lyth is in Caithness, uh, so right up in the northeast. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great smashing um, venue as well, um, doing all sorts of arts and and uh, performance. And so really, really pleased to be, to be there. Again, there'll be a bit of wild dancing afterwards as well. So. Well, thank you, Shona, for being with us. Um, and sounds like some amazing events we're going to have to go come to in the ne- this spring. Yeah, absolutely. And tell your friends. Uh, I'm, a kind of seeing.co.uk is the website. And uh, for Sintaspina, it's silentdivas.com. So we're all back. And uh, what's in store next month? Cinetopia is screening The Princess Bride at Leith Theatre tomorrow night. And what are you guys doing? Yeah, so uh, we launched um, a monthly uh, event with Leith Theatre, Thomas Morton Hall, and uh, we're doing a series called Quotable Classics. So we started with one of the most quotable films of all, Princess Bride. So what's really exciting about it is that we're hoping to get a whole bunch of people in the room and literally quote the film, which over the next couple months we hope to do similar things. So I think The next one will be uh, The Big Lebowski on March 27th. So keep looking on our website for more information about that. Great. Well, that's about it for February's edition of Cinetopia. Thanks to Gabrielle Brady and Shona Thompson for joining us. Thanks also to Nina Holton for curating the music throughout the show. We are back next month where we'll be reviewing more films and talking to more film industry people. The Cinetopia Radio Show is produced by Amanda Rogers, co-founder of Cinetopia and RPP Productions, hosted by myself, Paul Bruce, director of the Edinburgh Short Film Festival, with Jim Ross, managing editor of Take One magazine, and Annie Askekainen, <laughs> co-founder of Cinetopia. Music's created by Nina Halton. For more information about Cinetopia and her partners, go to cinetopiashow.com or follow us on social media at Cinetopia Show. See you next month.
Bye-bye. Bye-bye. See you. See you.